Welcome everybody to church. It's good to see you. You're blessed to be here tonight. That's funny. That's, about, that's, that's, that's some premium comedy right there. If you're not going to laugh at that, it's going to be a long night. I'll tell you that right now. Uh, well, welcome. My name is Matt Moberg. Thrilled that you guys are with us tonight. Um, we are starting a new series tonight. It's called Kingdom Come. We're going to be going through the Beatitudes. I'm going to tell you a story real quick. I wasn't planning on saying it, but, but I'm, I just I keep thinking about it. Um, I don't know where this story is going to go. A couple years ago, though, I was asked to, do a, um, to be on a panel for college kids uh, where they were asking about ministry and church. And I, If memory serves me correctly, I didn't say anything weird. I didn't say anything heretical. I didn't say anything strange. We should have been fine. Everyone should have been just chilled at the end of it. And yet somebody grabs a mic and says, Matt, can you just like, tell me, why, why are you a Christian? Like, how, how would you explain why you are a Christian to me? And I think I was in a... Uh, I think I was in like a cynical or maybe, uh, I, I, I was honest. And so I said, you know, I think it has something to do with my grandpa Roger being a Christian. And that was the house that I grew up in. That, that this is the holiness that felt like home. There's familiarity there. There's a place of roots inside of it. And so eventually, like, that's just, that's where I ended up. And um, I, I probably wouldn't answer that question the same way today. I think I know where the story is going now. Because last weekend, Lauren and I, after the service, hadn't spoken to her all week because uh, of Holy Week. That's how you keep a romance alive, you know? You have speaking sabbaticals. <laughs> Ask me if you need any help with your love life. I'd love to lend a hand. Um, but we uh, talking about the week and everything that happened, what went down, what was good, what was bad, what was coming up in the next week. And we started talking about Jesus. And we started talking about the Easter story. And we started talking about just how beautiful of a story it is. And how beautiful of a life uh, his was. And I think if I were asked again today, what I kind of concluded with Lauren last week is, I don't know if I'd have a precise answer why I'm a Christian. I'd assume that my grandpa Roger is still involved on some level. But um, it's because I think that Jesus has a beautiful life. And I would like to live a life like that. And when I listen to the Beatitudes, the blessings that Jesus gives, it's beautiful. It's compelling. In a lot of ways, I think I am following Jesus strictly for artistic reasons, because Jesus is my aesthetic. He's how I understand beauty and goodness. He's the criteria in which I can say this is right and this is wrong. This is good and this needs to go. And when I look at the life that Jesus paints, I really love the brushstrokes. I love the way that he forms the clay in his hands. I love that he says, blessed are those who are at the end of their rope in a world that does not do that. Blessed are those who make peace in a world that has never done that. My hope is that as we go through this series, uh, in the next eight weeks, as we go through this octagonal blessing that Jesus gives on the Sermon on the Mount, that you would come to see how beautiful of a life it is. That you would be compelled by, that you'd find space inside of this story to plant a root or two. And so over the next eight weeks, we are going to go one by one over the eight blessings that Jesus gives in his Sermon on the Mount. And uh, before we get to this one tonight, though, before we get to the first beatitude, we're going to climb onto the mountain. So if you have your Bible, not like you can see in here anyways right now, maybe went a little aggressive on dimming the lights, uh, we're going to go to Matthew 4 to start things off. Matthew 4 is the moment before the moment. It is right before Matthew 5, which is the Beatitudes. Matthew 4 reads like this. Jesus went throughout the Galilee, 
teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. And while he was doing that, he was healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea and the region across the Jordan ended up following him. This is the, the moment before the moment. And it's interesting because this is one of the first times where Jesus is caught on film with actually speaking about the kingdom. And while Matthew doesn't tell us what the kingdom actually means, he does show us why the kingdom matters. Because Jesus is going from town to town and people who are sick were walking up to him and they were walking away sick no more. Diseases were being cured, deformities were being corrected. Something about this man's presence in the towns that he passed through was healing. And while I understand that it's 2018 and there's parts of us when we read these stories of supernatural activities where Jesus is healing bodies that we want to rush past it. We want to get to the rational thing. We want to think that is so primitive, archaic, that it's symbolic. Whatever you might be thinking, please don't rush ahead so quickly. Because if we stick and we stop and we stare at this story just a little bit longer, I think we're going to see some things. I think we'll come to find that not only is Jesus a remedy for the sick, he's also revealing a sickness. At this time, at this time before germs and genetics and um, antibodies and antibiotics, before anyone knew anything about anything like that, before Doc Nielsen was around to show people the ins and outs of the medical world, what you had was a primitive understanding of how the body worked, and that understanding was coming from the religious leaders of the time. So in dominant Jewish thought, uh, the body belonged to, to theology. How you moved, how you breathed, how you washed your hands, what you ate, how you spoke to one another. Um, anything that had to do with your body, it was a theological issue. There was theology wrapped around it, and there were specific tasks attached to each of these theological practices, including if your body was healthy or if your body was sick. At this time, when Jesus, and we see this in the life of Jesus in other places where Jesus is walking through a town and his disciples go, now Jesus, tell me, that blind man over there, is he blind because of something his parents did or did he do something stupid? And Jesus, he just goes over there and he fixes the guy's eyes. He's not going to bother with that nonsense. So that's a dominant thought. At this time, the understanding is that if you have some kind of disease in your bones, in your bodies, if your body isn't, isn't working properly, it's because your fidelity stopped working first. You are sick because you sinned. You did something stupid. You said something to your mom that you shouldn't have said. She was just trying to help you with your hair. You didn't have to go there. You could have just kept your mouth shut, but you kept talking and talking and talking. And now you're sick because of it. That was the understanding at this time. And this wasn't just somebody's uh, crazy idea that somehow caught momentum. This is actually rooted in the foundation of their faith. Moses on a mountain, he says this. This is in the midst of him talking about why the people of Israel need to be obedient. And should they choose not to be obedient? Well, then here's what God's got in store for them. God will bring on you all the diseases of Egypt that you dread. And they will cling to you. The Lord will also bring on you every kind of sickness and disaster not recorded in this book of the law until you are completely destroyed. You who were as numerous as the stars in the sky will be left but few in number because you didn't obey the Lord your God. Just as it pleased the Lord to make you prosper and increase in number, so it will please him 
to ruin and destroy you. Doesn't Moses just sound like a good guy? Like somebody you'd want to go shoot pool with, watch the game with. He's cozy, right? Because what he is saying here is um, if you disobey, not only is God going to make you disappear, he's going to enjoy every second of your destruction. That's what's being said here. That's awful, right? Please tell me that's awful, right? It's awful. But what if it's true? Because if you're a rabbi or a priest at your time, again, pre-germ, pre-genetics, what if this is true? Who are you to stand in the way of what the founder of the faith has already said? If you are sick because you sinned, you don't know any better. Your job is not to interfere with God's death sentence. Your job is to carry it out, which means that bodies had to be kicked out. In the synagogue at this time, if you were sick, crippled, paralyzed, if you had something going on in your body that was shutting your body down, you were not cured in church, you were told to leave. You were thrown from the sanctuary into the streets until you dealt with all of your darkness, until your faith took over your fever, until you were back on your feet, finally restored and redeemed by God. Are you starting to catch an image here of what Jesus is doing when he's healing all these bodies in these streets? Because yes, it is a profound act of deliverance, but it's also incredibly disruptive. He's not just a remedy for the sick, he's also revealing a sickness, and it's beautiful. And it's also very problematic. Because if you're sitting in the synagogue, praising a God that you believe has diseased these people and led you to toss them into the streets, then what do you do with the God who is out in the streets picking up the people that you just broke down? That is a crisis of faith. Have you been in that place right there where the things that you believe start to crack a little bit and you don't know what to do with that? Where the anxiety creeps up on you and you can't really run, but you don't know how to fight it. You want to lean in, but it's terrifying. And so you're paralyzed. What do you do when your beliefs don't work the way that you were told that they would? I'm thinking about this now because my, my sweetie pie Ryan's here right now. By the way, Ryan might speak here next week, pending playoff fixtures, so everyone just, just chill, okay? We're going to be frank. Well, okay. But I'm thinking about this because seeing Ryan, now I'm remembering how two Octobers ago, um, uh, when Ryan called me, he said his dad wasn't doing so well, and he asked if I would come down to the hospital and pray. Now, we knew at that point, I think, when we went down there, that things weren't looking like overly optimistic. We had reasons to be concerned. It didn't look like he was bright. And yet, um, and so we weren't walking in there, like, with any kind of, like, lofty expectation that bada bing, bada boom, we're going to lay on healing hands and things would change. And yet, when we walked into that room, I started to believe that that was possible. I mean, I'm thinking about this moment, and I remember standing there next to Debbie, and I remember standing there next to Ryan. I remember holding hands with everybody in the room, laying hands in the body. And I remember never being in the presence of God like I was in that space there. A palpable, powerful presence of God. Electric beyond articulation. I, couldn't, I could not adequately describe to you what it felt like in that room. So much so that when we were actually praying, not once did I close my eyes because I was expecting his dad to sit back up. And then he never did. And when I think about that story, 
and I think about that space, and I think about the power that was present inside of that, as tragic and hard, that, that, that messed me up theologically. Again, not because I went in there thinking that it's just where we go, God is going to cure, and it's just that simple, but because I had never thought that God could be so present and the pain could also persist. I never felt like God was hands all over the room, and yet he wasn't pulling anything out. What do you do with that? What do you do with that when what you believe about God, it doesn't play out in reality? When your experience doesn't line up with what you expect? What do you do when you don't know what it means? And what do you do when you don't know if you ever will? See, I think the default for many of us, if we're honest, is that you have a choice in that moment right there where the crisis of faith comes in, because it will come in, right? We have these moments, regardless of who you are, uh, life isn't static, it doesn't sit still. Triumphs change us, tragedies change us. The mundane surprises us, the catalytic moments let us down. Every moment somebody dies, another moment somebody is born. And no matter which party you belong to, those who are in sorrow or those who are in celebration, life doesn't stand still. Try as hard as we would like to store all of our beliefs in the refrigerator of life. You give it enough time and they will expire. And when they do, where will you stand? Because for most of us, we'll still be standing in the synagogue, white-knuckling beliefs that we know are broken, but we don't know how to live without them. We don't know how to live open-handed to a mystery when we can make God into math. When we make him into this cage where he can run inside of and not go out further. And so we freeze. And we forfeit the invitation of disruption. Not because we love our lives so much, because we are terrified of losing them. Because these things, these beliefs that we hold, the whole time, it's been the beliefs that have been holding us. Our stability. And the moment we start asking questions, the moment we start pulling on that thread that is loose, the whole thing might unravel and I'll no longer have any idea who I am. But maybe that's why Jesus says, you actually can't find your life until you lose it first. You can't discover what the Spirit is doing in your story until you let go of your need for the Spirit to be doing this. Until you take the pen of your life and hand it over to someone else and enter into that place of unknowing where it's mystery. Where you're not pinning it all down in math, but you're participating in the mystery. The people in the synagogue, as Jesus is going through the towns, they see the bodies that they kicked out being picked back up, and they have to make a decision. And what's beautiful about this text, what we can so often and easily miss, is that they got up and they went. They left. Matthew says, I think I have the text here. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. Now, what's interesting about this is I, I'm not a writer. I, I have a blog. There's one post on it from 2008. If you're interested, I think it's still present on wordsmith.com or my MySpace page. Either one, check it out. I'd love some attention on there. 
So I'm, I'm not an expert in the field of writing, but, but it feels like you could write in here, you could say, everybody from everywhere was there. Be a lot simple. Instead, he lists off the major places in, Jer- in Israel. Galilee, the Decapolis, which is the ten cities, pagan, Greek, Jerusalem, Judea, and you have to ask why. Why not just go everywhere from anywhere? Matthew is telling you where all these people are from because he wants us to understand that this is not where they should be. They shouldn't be together. Especially for those who are faithful Jews in this crowd, which is the bulk majority of them. Davidic law alone said that you do not rub shoulders, you don't stand in the presence, swap stories, have drinks with people from the Decapolis. Those are pagans, those are Greeks. There's clear boundaries around here. If you are from the Galilee, like Jesus was from the Galilee, you were culturally frowned upon because you were one of the you were one of the liberal Jews. That's where all the revolutionaries were rising out of. You were troublemakers. If you were from Jerusalem, you were elite. You were pure. You had your stuff in order. You knew right from wrong. Judea, the same thing. Decapolis, dangerous, pagan, Greek. And yet they're all here. All of these people and their own stories back home, they got up and they left because they heard good news. News that transcended their systems, news that transcended their religions, news that transcended the places where they thought God had to be, and all of a sudden he was out in the streets. And so they make the choice to get up and go. And to follow is Jesus, who nobody knows anything about. They know he's from Galilee, so he might be trouble, and yet they can't reconcile the fact that he might be trouble with the fact that he's also reviving and resurrecting lives in front of them. He's healing people. There is life happening here. It's empirical evidence that this is good. And to continue to send bodies into the streets where God himself is picking them up, that would be wrong. And so in courage, you have this large groups of people who are getting up, packing their bags, and they're going after Jesus. Would you do the same? Have you done the same? Have you gone to that place where you didn't think you'd go? because you trusted that the Spirit was out there pulling you further. Didn't make sense at the time. You didn't have a map in hand. You didn't have all of your whys lined up. But you trusted that life was up there. And so you got up and got. These people are all standing for Jesus. They don't have answers. Probably have never been more spiritually confused. Couldn't have more of a diverse crowd of people here who have run out of their way of doing their story. And it's at this point that Jesus, he starts climbing a mountain, which is really a a glorified uh, hill. But it says that as he's going up, he turns around and he looks at these crowds. He looks at the messes out there. He looks at all these people who are there who shouldn't have been there. All the people who have run out of answers, all the people who have stopped figuring out, all these spiritual orphans, all these people who are tired, And as they're climbing up the mountain, as Jesus is climbing up the mountain, some of the Jews should have, and my hunches would have, connected a few dots and said, we've seen this story before. Because we remember that at the beginning of the Jewish story, their big bang, their big original moment was Moses going up on the mountain. Moses taking a people out of a place that they did not think that they could leave, through a path that they did not know was possible, where he takes them up on a mountain and he gives them laws. 
He gives them uh, distinctives and discernments, ways that our tribe is going to function in this world that's going to be different than the other tribes out there. And he does it on a mountain in front of 12 tribes of Israel. So when Jesus comes up on this mountain, this is a story that they have seen before. What is Jesus doing? He's forming a new tribe. He's forming a new people. With the mess of people that have been failed by systems before, he's saying there's a better way we could go about doing this. And he starts climbing this mountain, just like Moses climbed. And he gathers his 12 disciples, just like Moses gathered 12 tribes. And he says, here's the first thing you need to know about us as a people. And as he's looking out at the crowds, the first word that he gives to this people who are just a hot mess, he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who are poor in spirituality. Blessed are those who don't have all of the answers. Do you see the power in what Jesus is doing here? You see the beauty in that? He's forming this new tribe, and his first move is to step onto the mountain and say, you are blessed if you can't figure it out. You're really going to like the kingdom of God. You're really going to enjoy the tribe that I am going into inaugurating and cultivating among you if you don't come with white-knuckled beliefs. You who have struggled to find a spiritual home, you who have struggled to understand what is right and wrong, where God is and where God isn't, you're really going to enjoy this thing. You are blessed if you struggle and you squirm inside of church. You are blessed if you do not know the difference between Genesis and Revelation. You are blessed if you can't figure it all out. Because then you might be open enough to see a God who can step in. A God who can actually give you an unmediated experience, an encounter that is transformative. And it's no longer about preserving the status quo. It's no longer about practicing the mathematics of religion. It's about participating in the mystery of God where God makes beautiful things out of dust. The first word that Jesus gives is, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I read this quote the other day, and I want us to think about, um, I want us to think about this. If Jesus is standing on this mountain and he's giving distinctives, now here, let me say this actually real quick. Before we think about what he's, as we're assessing what he's doing here, yes, he is saying, blessed are you who are poor in spirit, but he's not saying, screw you who are rich in spirit. And the two, the two do not go hand in hand. To be rich in spirit is not to be incongruent with the kingdom of Christ. To be a theologian, to be, I'm, not saying this, I'm not saying this to defend my career, okay? If that's not what I'm doing right now. I realize that's what it looks like. But my point being is that like, it is a beautiful thing to be accumulating understanding of God, to be studying the scriptures, to be diving in, to be enriching these things. He's just not talking to you right here. It's not bad. It's not wrong. He's just not talking. What's going to be distinctive about this kingdom is that in every other kingdom, you need to be an expert. You need to meet some minimal qualification to get in, to be a participant in that story. But that's not how this tribe works. In this story... Your hunger, your curiosity, your openness, your desire to see something good, your desire to see God move, that'll do. You belong in a story like that. The whole story of God, again, you see it in this sermon later on, is Jesus showing that God gives indiscriminate favor to all people. And especially spiritually rich people have struggles with that. 
They cringe at that. But this is one of our distinctives. This is what makes us unique, is that it does not matter where you fall in the spiritual spectrum. In our midst, wherever the kingdom of God is, you've found yourself a home. You can belong here. That's our distinctive, the discernment that he gives us, is that even if you aren't spiritually poor, you'll be good to those who are. Jesus is saying that at the core of this tribe, we do not do theological anxiety here. We don't do bullying with our beliefs here. We don't beat people with Bible verses here. We don't nitpick what they don't know, what nobody knows. We don't do that stuff here. We do things different. And if you prioritize your beliefs over the bodies on the streets, that's not how the kingdom is going to come about. The first word, the defining word that sets the trajectory for the rest of the words is, are you open to what God is doing in your mix? Or are you just stuck on your expectations of what God has to do? Pray with me. Nope, don't, don't pray with me yet. I have that quote I wanted to tell you. <laughs> don't do it. Please don't pray with me yet. This is the quote I saw the other day. And I really think this speaks to the discernment nature of uh, the kingdom of God, this approach, this posture, this, uh, this humility and this hunger. In the end, we are all just walking each other home. Isn't that beautiful? With all of our half answers, right and wrong, all of our confusion and moments of clarity, all the moments of profound revelation, all those moments where we feel like God was supposed to come through and he didn't. God was supposed to do that and he didn't. All that together, we come together to say, what are you seeing? And we're here just to help each other walk back home. Now you can pray with me. Jesus, God, we are a mess, Lord, but you are a mystery, and you keep pulling us forward, God. The story of the church is people who heard the Spirit and stepped out of the systems at hand to hear what you had to say. God, as we think about the work that you are doing in our midst, God, Lord, give us the courage to transcend boundaries that you never put into place. God, give us the courage to rise above rules that you never put forth. God, give us the courage to love bodies more than our beliefs. You are good, and we are grateful. In all God's children, we say together, amen.